Stories from Foster Care is brought to you by the Irish Foster Care Association in association with the Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. Welcome to the Stories from Foster Care podcast. I'm Neve Barrett and today I'm joined by Dr. Danielle Douglas, who is a lecturer in social care in the School of Humanities in Southeast Technological University. Danielle was in care herself and has also been a relative foster carer. She has a unique perspective on foster care and hers was a powerful story to listen to. I think that sibling separation can lead to so many other difficulties. Siblings are the people that they stay with you your entire lives. They're there, you know, after your parents are gone, they're there before your children come. So they're the one kind of group of people that are consistent. And so keeping that connection and that relationship can be a, a really source of resilience for them. So listeners are aware, there is mention of attempted suicide during our conversation. Danielle tells her story with great openness and generosity, and we hope you enjoy listening. So Danielle, welcome. Thank you very much. And thanks for being here. Thanks so thanks much. Thanks for coming up from Waterford. You're very welcome. Your story has kind of taken in so many different aspects, if you like, of, of the whole world of foster care. You were in care yourself, then you became a foster carer, uh, and now you're an academic, you're a lecturer, you're a teacher and a researcher, guiding students in the social care program down in the Southeast Technical, Technological University, as it's called now. Um, you did very well to remember that. <laughs> I, <know>. I <laughs> even forget sometimes still. Yeah, which used to be WIT, wasn't it? Yes. Waterford Institute yeah. of Technology. So um, you've been there for some time. You were also the youngest and first care-experienced president of IFCO. International Foster Care Organization. So what a range of experience. <laughs> Just to start, if it's okay, with the, with the beginning of your story, how how old were you when you when you came into care? If it's okay to yeah, start. Yeah, of course, there? yeah. Um so I was ten when I went into foster care. I was the oldest living at home at the time. So there even though I have four siblings who are older than me, so there's eight of us all together. But by the time that I went into care, the older four had already gone. Um, the older one was living independently and the rest were already in different placements. So, um, so yeah, I was 10 and there was three younger than me as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and did the younger ones also go into care at that time? How, if, again, just, just as much or as little as you want to say about this, but, but how did it... How did it happen and, and, and where yeah, did you go? And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I meant to say to you, actually, I love the title of the podcast. And I'm not getting distracted here. There's a point to me saying that. But, mm. you know, stories from foster care are, it's such an important title of a podcast because that's really what they are. Yeah. And they always have a beginning. And during my own master's research and my PhD research, that entry point into care was always so significant for people. Um, and obviously the training that foster carers get, that social workers get, it covers that a bit, but I'm not really sure if you can ever capture, the, you know, just what goes on on that day. So in the lead up to me going into foster care, there was um, lots of involvement with social workers at the time, lots of questioning, lots of, you know, them knocking at the doors and us hiding in cupboards and under beds and pretending mm. we weren't there. And um, I hadn't been going to school for a long time because I was I was the oldest living at home, but I was minding my baby brother. He was only nine months. 
and I knew things were getting quite dangerous. Um, there was a lot of abuse, there was a lot of neglect. Um, we were left sometimes in the house. So there was me, my sister, who was uh, nine at the time, uh, my little brother, who was six or five maybe, and then my baby brother. And um, I knew things were getting quite dangerous, particularly for the baby. So, yeah, we would always kind of um, lie and say that things were fine and we were all okay. And uh, obviously there was things going on behind the scenes that we weren't aware of, maybe teachers or other sort of referrals that were being made. But until they had one of us, I suppose, to corroborate any of that, they weren't really able to do anything. So eventually one day it all came to a head. I won't get into it, but a significant event happened where I realised very quickly that if I didn't do something the lives, basically, of uh, my siblings were going to be at risk. So I called the social workers. But they came and they took me and left the other three. And actually, it's something that has never, ever left me. I remember distinctly my sister holding the baby in her arms, running after the car, you know, begging me not to go and not to be taken. I still, to this day, do not understand why they took me and not the others, but... Um, it wasn't long anyway before they were, it was literally the next day um, that my foster, the foster carers that I had been sent to when I came in from school, because they made me go to school the next day, I'll never forget it, you know, completely and utterly traumatised um, and I didn't speak for weeks. But I remember coming home, there was a packet of Pampers on the countertop and the foster mother looked kind of excited about telling me that he was going to be coming but I knew, even at 10, I just knew, I was like, well, why didn't they take him yesterday? What Something must have happened, you know, last night. Um, and so it had. But um, so that's how that's how our story started. Um, we were so we lived together, myself and him, the baby, for about nine months. Um, and the other my other two younger siblings went to two separate placements. Yeah. So between the four of us, we had three different placements. Um, mm hmm. And it was really difficult because, you know, I feel, I feel he stayed with that foster family for a long time, for a long, long time. And he actually considers them, you know, his family and they've been very good to him over the years. And um, so we kind of negotiate, he negotiated, I suppose, the two families then for a long time. But when we first went there, you know, looking back now, I'm able to feel sorry for the, for the foster family because I made things very difficult. Uh, you know, I was his caregiver his primary caregiver at the time so I didn't like really other people getting involved and you know the the expectation from them for me was that I would go outside and play and be a normal 10 year old child and um, but I wasn't really used to that you know so it was very difficult to try and figure out I suppose who I was in that family now with this this lack of duty and roles that I had been fulfilling were being taken away from me it was actually causing arguments you know I would say oh he's hungry he needs yeah. whatever no he's not you know I'll tell you when he's hungry and I'm like no you won't I'll tell you when he's hungry so the placement broke down after about nine months I'm, I'm just struck Danielle by how much you had on your shoulders at the age of 10 and um, how much your siblings were in your mind particularly the baby you know and and and, and carrying all of that and I think I think we understand better now how it would have been for you coming into care with your baby brother and needing to stay his carer in some degree for a while, you know, to preserve that. That is so much to be on on your shoulders at that age. I incredible resilience in that as well. So what happened next? He, he, he stayed with the, 
the family and then and then you moved yeah so I moved um, and I had multiple moves then during um, my time in care I moved eight times um, so between say reunifications back with my birth mother um, and I had five different foster families so um, so yeah I, I kind of really struggled to settle down now having said that I still have contact with the three long-term foster families that I was with um, and the the final, which I'll get to, foster family, they like the my foster sister say from there is my daughter's godmother, and you know I stayed very close with, yeah, with the long term ones, um, but it's it's difficult I think you know and again this is not rocket science the research is there to to back this up that obviously the older the child is the the more difficult it can be, mm. um, and that's what I found as well not just from my own story but from the stories of the young people from my PhD as well this um, sort of slicing up your your life or categorizing your life in terms of before care during care and after care Mm. and for for the young people who were older or similar age those before care experiences you know really had a long-term impact on their ability to you know integrate into the families and um, you know emotions around guilt when you did start to feel I found that was a, a you know again I couldn't have possibly known that this was what was going on at the time um, and this is the benefit of having studied social care and um, you know learned all the, the gotten all the theoretical answers for uh, what I needed and not all of them but some of them that you know the um, the guilt that I was feeling around secure attachment starting to feel like I was lovable and that I was capable of loving another family was terrifying Mm. to me um and so that would cause my behavior to be you know um cause difficulties and um that's why I think I was never really able to settle down yeah um and I was so attached to my birth family as well that I I was kind of straddling both worlds if you like you know I had this this person who I was with them and this person who I was with other families and they didn't always necessarily you know uh, get on the, the two individuals themselves um, so I, hope, I don't know if that makes sense but that's yeah. why mm-hmm. the, the concept of identity really um, struck me as being something that needed to be explored more amongst children in foster care this this multiple identities or multiple selves that you have to kind of draw from to fit into the different contexts that you're in just as an everyday example I remember one of the foster families that I was with were quite well to do they were quite posh and very very different from anything that I had ever experienced before but they used to eat their burgers and chips with a knife and fork um <laughs> even if they'd gotten them from the chipper like they'd all be sitting down <laughs> eating them with them. and I thought this was bizarre but again what do I know I only have this one experience um, and so that was fine and then that placement broke down and I went to this this next foster family and they were really much more now you know akin to what I was used to and much more down to earth and but on the first night the they said we'll get chipper you know as a kind of a to welcome you and we'll get a little takeaway and it'll be all lovely so we got burgers and chips and I remember going to the drawer getting the knife and fork to starting to eat it and they they just cracked up the children at the table just cracked up with the laughing and look and literally pointing at me look what she's doing look what she's doing and of course it must have seemed my own children were probably like what is that what is she doing but at, at the, the time I'll I'll never forget the this the sense of shame and embarrassment and feeling like I was never going to figure this out you know how do you 
you know, now I had this new family with this whole new set of rules, this whole new ways of being, these routines, structures, house rules, uh, personalities that I now had to come to terms with, get used to, figure out, figure out who I was in relation to all of that. And it's, it was very, very confusing. And while young people are doing all that, they still have to get by in school, manage their friendships, negotiate relationships within their birth family and, you know, what's going on there. So it's it's a huge, there's a lot going on for them. Yeah, and it strikes me that, especially in adolescence, where every child is going through um, a kind of a reevaluation in a way of their identity, mm-hmm. who they are, who they're not, who they're not like, who they are like, and so on. Uh, did you find that was especially complex for you at, at, at that age when you were moving into adolescence, trying to form your own identity yeah. as an individual? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, how we form identities are through our key social groups, primary one being the family, attaching ourselves to the beliefs and the values. Now, obviously, there is that part where we reject all of that and we go through that rebellious um, stage as well and figure out who we are. But you know it's very difficult when you have had no length of time really because even in the 10 years before I went into care there was a lot of moves and moving around and uh, different partners may say coming and going so it was very hard to get a consistency you know I had suppressed a lot Um, I I think when I figured out that I was good at education um, like I really enjoy listening to Aisha's thing about the hockey and I was constantly looking for the thing that I was going to attach myself to and I could never really find it. Um, education was a disaster for me in my secondary school days and my primary school. I mean, I, I moved three times in the final year of, of primary school. Um, but, but when I went back um, and realised actually I can do this and I have got a good memory and I can, and I used to have a good memory, and I can do well in tests and it just boosted my confidence, boosted my identity and, um, you know, but, but again, there was all this other stuff then that I was embarrassed about to how I had gotten to that. So, you know, I, I kept a lot hidden from people around me. And again, that's, that's something that I, I was shocked uh, when I talked and listened to the stories of the young people in my PhD research that that, that was still happening. You know, I felt... It was such a long time since I've been in care. I really had hoped, I suppose, that the stigma around it would have been reduced a little, a little bit. I know from the media it hasn't in terms of the, the figures and all the information that's mm. put out there can be quite stigmatising. But I just felt that the young people themselves maybe wouldn't feel as stigmatised, but actually that wasn't the case, um, even though it was only a small cohort of 16 um, young people. But nearly all of them, with the exception of one, kept a lot of the their stories hidden and felt that if their friends or particularly people in school knew this about them that they would be judged and that they wouldn't be treated equally or that they would be invited to certain friendship groups or different things and you know it was causing quite a lot of stress on them one young person she used the name of her uh, you know the strategies the coping strategies that they um you talk about resilience i mean it's absolutely amazing mm. the level of thought that was put into how they were going to um, conceal this, these facts about themselves, which again, you know, walking around carrying this secret that they feel is shameful isn't necessarily healthy. Um, but one young girl, she was using the name of her foster family and had done since she was about 18 months old. Um, but on all of her legal paperwork, it was her birth name. So her bus card 
transport card or whatever had her birth name on it and she kept that in her phone wallet and she lost her phone for two days and she just went into detail describing you know how physically sick she felt that somebody in the school would pick this up and realize that she had a different name that would lead to questions that she'd have to explain and you know her words where they would think I'm even weirder than I am and you know all this kind of stuff mm. so it's those everyday little experiences that being in foster care even though she had a very loving foster family she felt very loved it still impacted on her life in different ways that you know she had no control over hello i'm Catherine joyce and you're listening to stories from foster care podcast be sure to subscribe on spotify apple or wherever you get your podcast from just to warn you that in the next couple of minutes of my conversation with danielle there is a brief mention of suicide when I left the foster home where I was living with my brother and I was saying that I found it hard to settle into any foster family. But I, I do have to say this, that the, particularly the three long, um, long term, and I say long term, I mean, they were two years each, but um, they put so much work and effort and they were so kind. And actually, it's really one of the interesting things about my story is those three placements. I was their first foster child. Um, which was really interesting but they've all gone on to foster more since so it couldn't have been that bad <laughs> didn't turn them off completely um, so yeah so so I went to different places and during that time I really struggled and then when I was about uh, 15 I decided I want to go back and live with my mother again just found it really hard to settle in um, I always had a really incredible sense of loyalty to her which wasn't always very healthy, but it was what it was. So I went back. It didn't work out. It ended up being an absolute disaster. And I remember thinking, okay, I've got a couple of choices here. You know, if I stay where I am, I am going to go down this route or I can make a different decision and try and, you know, make something. So I went to the social workers myself and the social... Now, this was a long time ago. This wouldn't happen now. I'm sure but the social worker at the time said um, there was no places left that I had made my decision that they had tried to tell me not to go back not to leave the foster family and that really you know they, they didn't have anywhere for me and they let me know if anywhere came up and I remember just feeling so um, devastated like that it was my own fault that you know I had made this terrible decision and um, unfortunately I tried to take my own life mm. that day um, that night but my sister found me and I remember waking up in the hospital and that was really the moment that I decided like that I was really happy I had woken up that I was really grateful that actually I don't think I really wanted to harm myself I was just desperate and I was tired and I was scared didn't know what else to do and so from the hospital the previous foster family that I had been with had paid for me for to go on a school tour but I had left school to go back and live with my mother. I wasn't wasn't um, in school anymore. I'd left for about three months. But I remembered this trip and um, I called the school and said, can I still go on this trip? Because it was somewhere to, for me to be for five days. Um, and they, I remember the teacher had to get the doctor to call him to say that I was like safe to go on the trip. I mean, it's bonkers when you think about it. But anyway, off I went to Italy for five days. I uh, didn't know where I was going to live, didn't know what I was going to do when I came back. And I remember telling my friend on the bus, on the, on the bus down from Dublin, and this other girl piped up behind and she said, um, like, 
you know, I know we're friends and everything, but we don't know each other that well. But like, we have a really big house and like we have five bedrooms and there's only me and my mom and dad. Like, do you want to come and live with us? And I said, well, it doesn't really work like that, but thank you so much. And she was like, but why don't we just try? So I got back, called into the social workers, told them. And I think literally about two weeks later, they came and picked me up from my mum's with all there's all my stuff. And um, yeah, I lived with them then, did my uh, leave insert. They were incredibly encouraging. Again, they had a really, really good way, even though, you know, they weren't foster carers. They hadn't had the training, say, that other foster carers would, but they had this innate sense of not pushing me too much, giving me space, giving me encouragement, and just being really good role models. So I think the timing was just perfect in that I really was ready to accept the help that this family wanted to offer. And maybe if I'd have gone to them at a different time or an earlier time, it wouldn't have worked out the way that it did. But I was just so desperate at this point to make it work. And so, yeah, they were just incredible, incredible people. I was so lucky and fortunate. Um, I was lucky for all my foster families. They were really good. And like I said, I think some of them, it's just unfortunate it didn't work out, but it was because I wasn't ready, not necessarily because, you know, I wasn't getting... Mm the care that I, I needed. And I think that's really important for some of your listeners who might be foster carers to to remember as well that, you know, no matter how much work and effort and support, if a placement does break down, you know, please don't be too hard on yourself because it's devastating. Nobody wants that to happen. I went through it myself when I was a relative foster carer though. You know, we did everything we could. I mean, I was nearly on the brink of a nervous breakdown myself. And it just wasn't enough for what he needed. We weren't trained for what he needed at that time. Mm. And actually, after he left, our relationship got much better again. Do you know? Yeah. And we've gotten closer since. But yeah. but just to go back. So I finished my leave insert. Uh, did quite well. Was really happy. Went off to college in Cork and got pregnant. <laughs> so can we pause it there for yeah. one second? Yeah. <laughs> because... I, I just I want to thank you for telling that, that story within your whole story and and just to say like you're the agency that that you've had all the way through to, the ability to advocate for yourself is really extraordinary picking up the phone to the social workers picking up the phone to the school getting yourself onto the trip to Italy and then having the conversation, you know, that led to that placement eventually, like, you know, the timing was right. But also it's really, really extraordinary how able you were to to advocate for yourself. And, and I know not every child, you know, has that. And that's certainly not their fault, but it's um, really, really quite something. Just wanted to say that. Oh, thank you. And thank you for, for telling telling that story. And, you know, it's something... Actually, I had never thought of it that way before because the picking up the phone call to the social workers is something that I still really, it still affects my life a lot. I feel a lot of guilt around it. Um, And I know my siblings and I have talked about it. I've talked about it with therapists. I've talked about it with friends. um, And, you know, I have the knowledge to know that it wasn't my fault, that I did the right thing, but I'll, I'll never accept that. You know what I mean? That was the, that was the moment that the whole our whole family just exploded, you know, and we were all separated. So I have a lot of um, survivor's guilt as well around, you know, that I, I have had the agency, I had the resilience to go after what I wanted and I had the drive and the determination to, to pursue education and to, 
to want to work and you know not everybody is that lucky um, not everybody has the mental health capacity to be able to do that not everybody has the resources um, the timing doesn't always align like it did for me that one time you know so it's it's lovely for you to say that and it's, it's a really nice way of thinking about it so I should probably start thinking about it like that more often <laughs> Uh, so I was telling you that I became an absolute cliche <laughs> teenage pregnancy after all the effort I had put in. Um, and again, there's there's something in this as well for, for foster care listeners and also young people who find themselves in the situation because despite the evidence that this foster family loved me and cared for me, remember I was over 18 now and there was no sign of them asking me to leave or, you know, it was pretty much yeah you're coming home at the weekend you're going to be home for Christmas you know I was part of this family now and it didn't matter whether they were getting payment or no payment or anything like that um but I still was absolutely terrified to tell them that I was pregnant I just really believed in my heart and soul I suppose because previous experiences had taught me that you know I lose people that I love um and I just thought this is going to be it now you know and it's going to be me and the baby and I'm going to go down the route that I've seen other people go down and I remember um, my boyfriend at the time her dad um we both agreed that I would tell them you know so we were sitting in there and I was crying the minute my foster mother walked into the room I was crying and she was like oh my god what's going on is, is everything okay is it your granddad um because he was elderly at the time and I couldn't speak I was like you tell her so I made him tell her but I'll never ever forget it she she walked over to me and she got down on her knees took my hands in her hands and she looked me straight in the eye and she said this baby is going to be the best thing that's ever happened to you a baby is a blessing um, and this is something that you should be happy about and you should celebrate you don't need to be scared you don't need to be upset we're going to help you you can stay living here and I'll just it was probably the first time in my life that I really felt unconditional you know unconditionally loved wow unconditional positive regard it was just um it was such a, a lovely lovely moment and yeah so it was it was really amazing uh, I had my daughter stayed living with them for about a year um <clears throat> while her dad was still in college and then when she was six weeks old I was still wanted to go back to education so I did the foundation cert in child and social care studies which was two hours on a Tuesday night in WIT at the time and then when she was nine months old I went back to do the full-time four-year social care well it was three years and then I did the add-on and then in the final weeks of my add-on unfortunately my um, dad passed away um, in England that's a whole other story but I hadn't seen him for quite a long time and um, by the time we had heard that he was sick we we made a 16-hour journey and got there 20 minutes after he had died so that was quite traumatic and um, my foster mother also passed away a month later oh, quite gosh. suddenly so it was a really really difficult time I had to defer all my exams until the autumn but I had won a scholarship from the office of the minister for children to do a master's and it was on the condition that I got a 1-1 in my degree so I yeah I went back in the autumn did 12 exams 12 essays <laughs> and got my 1-1 and I was really fortunate then to um, start the, the Masters looking at resilience and the link between resilience and outcomes of children in foster care and while I was um, doing that my supervisor got sick um, not seriously sick or anything but just you know had to go into hospital for an operation or something and they asked me would I fill in for him for six weeks uh, lecturing while he you know while he was out and I was like oh god I don't know about this you know I did social care because I wanted to work with people be on the ground but I said you know I'll give it a go 
Um, and that was great. Six weeks turned into what my 14 years lecturing now. Um, and so once I finished the masters, I then started getting involved in IFCA and IFCO and uh, loved, absolutely just loved everything about it. Loved meeting other care experienced people and uh, and then I became the president of IFCO and um, now I'm a doctor. <laughs> yes, Dr. Um, Daniel yes. Douglas now. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and just this year I started as the program leader for the level eight course in social care as well. So it's been quite a journey. Oh yeah, and that, that year where I was doing all those exams, that's when we were fostering for us, just because again, we were so young, we couldn't possibly have had the skills um, trying to cope with our own, uh, you know, um, losses. My husband's mom passed away about six months after my dad and my foster mother, um, or six months before, sorry. Um, so we were both kind of grieving a lot and trying mm. to raise my daughter and, um, you know, so there's a lot going on. So, but, but I have to say it, it gave me an appreciation for the other side of things, the difficulties trying to deal with the system that say foster care is who I would have had I never understood that on their behalf you know they would say we're trying to get answers we're trying I will try harder <laughs> <laughs> well now I knew what it was like you know um, and it, and again not to point the fingers at, at the social workers or it's just the system is mm. so difficult to work with um, so I've seen that from from that kind of point of view as well and you know trying to hold young people's emotions and difficulties and challenges and try not to take their behaviors personally it's 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 tough you know every day yeah yeah how old were you when you were fostering yeah um I think we were 21 when we first started with the first chap and then we were 25 the next one just so really barely out of adolescence yourself and with a small baby and yeah wow yeah yeah so in your research now and your, your work and your contact with um, young people in the care system, what do you feel needs to, needs to change? I mean, probably there's a lot that needs to change, right? And this is something we ask everybody who, who we yeah. talk to, you know. But what, what do you feel is needed most? Well, I suppose drawing from my findings from the research and what the young people felt uh, needed to be changed, I think there needs to be more emphasis put on the types of relationships that young people are getting something from. So what I mean by that is uh, in a care plan, oftentimes the relationships with birth families or, you know, maybe previous foster families even, but not always, unfortunately, will be prioritised. Whereas the young people that I spoke to, some of the relationships that aren't often spoken about in um, definitely not in care plans, um, and not even in research, but other care experienced young people, for example, and pets, you know, pets are, came up all the time. I mean, my young people had photographs, uh, sorry, disposable cameras that they had for two weeks to take photographs of things or places or people or whatever they wanted that were important to them. And um, by far the most common photographs that were taken were of the pets and the stories that, that came out of those and the narratives around leaving pets when they were going into care and that being a real source of grief for them. Um, but that was never 
talked about then in a care plan can we have access to this particular even if they left a foster home mm-hmm. pets were often a catalyst for helping settle in you know okay well you can take the dog for a walk the dog can sleep on your bed they gave a lot of comfort and if that placement broke down then that was just not only did they lose the people but they lost the pet as well so I think just thinking about things a little bit differently listening to young people um, I find it, I think a lot of things have changed, certainly since, you know, a lot of the things that I've outlined in my story today, things have gotten much, much better and they wouldn't happen today necessarily. But I think um, listening to young people, we are seeing a lot more uh, studies where the voices of young people are, are at the centre, which is fantastic because that, you know, didn't always happen either. Like, it's very difficult. Anybody who has done research with children and young people in care will tell you how difficult it is to get access to them. And, you know, they are considered a vulnerable group, so it is important that gatekeeping is is strict. Um, But even at that, you know, you're very cognizant of the fact that the young people that you're speaking to were chosen by professionals that work in the system um and that represent the system so i still think that a lot of the stories that we hear are not representative of maybe the the even more difficult um uh, cases where there have been multiple placement breakdowns um so yeah i think listening to children and young people i one of the things that i really wish would change that hasn't in my opinion changed and maybe people will challenge me on this but supports for birth families um you know we it's you know chill and this is what something that i'm realizing as well children don't just get taken into care there's lots of preventative work i mean tusla i have to say the ppfn you know the family support all of that kind of stuff is absolutely amazing but i feel like once a child is taken the follow-up support doesn't necessarily match then you know like if you don't get clean or if you don't leave this person or if you don't think their children will be taken out because it's not a safe environment for them to be in children are taken out and then we expect that this person who has addiction problems or mental health problems or is in a domestic abusive relationship will just be like oh I didn't think they were serious I'll just get better then and get them back without any support you know Mm -hmm. so I think um there definitely needs to be a lot more support um, for, for birth families um, yeah. and for siblings as well one of the things I'd love to see is uh, and this will only happen unfortunately if more people foster um, because there is a shortage of foster care as there always has been and that directly impacts on the types of placements then that we can offer um, and there's not a lot of people out there who have the room to take in three or four siblings that you know together um, but I think that sibling separation can lead to so many other difficulties um, siblings are the people that that you know they stay with you your entire lives they're yeah. there you know after your parents are gone they're there before your children come so they're the one kind of group of people that are consistent um, and so keeping that connection and that relationship um, can be a, a really um, source of resilience for them and and it's when it's broken apart unnecessarily it's um, and without explanation I think you know I remember our access we had it once a week when we first started and it was the most miserable place you'd ever want to be in it was in a social worker's office smoking was allowed at the time so half the family would be puffing away in this tiny little dingy room with posters peeling off the wall and it was awful but I couldn't sleep with excitement the night before it I just couldn't wait for it and then every single week I'll never forget at four o'clock on a Wednesday you it must have been absolutely traumatizing for the social workers because you they had to peel our fingers off the door you know and off each other 
it was absolutely harrowing it was really upsetting Mm. um and then because of that because it was upsetting some members of the family too much they moved it to once a month which was really difficult um to accept and I I I remember that being a catalyst for for my behavior you know I remember my behavior getting worse and um feeling really annoyed that we hadn't done anything to you know to deserve it so I think speaking to explaining you know the reasons for things is really important and children in foster care we don't give them enough credit either you know we think maybe we're protecting people by not giving them honesty and truth most of the time they know what's going on Um, and this came up as well in my research when I was asking them you know who do you talk to when you have you know when you have questions or you have difficulties or you feel upset about things and some of them said well I don't talk to um, my foster mom because she doesn't talk to me about things it was about her her mom's drinking and she said um, my mom thinks that I don't know about my mom's drinking she called both of them mom um, and so I don't want to upset her by bringing it up so she had all these questions and all these worries but she thought she'd be doing something wrong by by actually raising it and for the foster mother's part she thought that the child had no idea that mom was sick and that's why you know but what I'm saying is they know more mm-hmm. than maybe we think they do yeah, and maybe they can handle more honesty than we can think, uh, than yeah. we think as well, yeah. um, and that it's actually ultimately reassuring to them yeah. to have things named that they can sense or they already know but are keeping hidden. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. Particularly if they've had instances before where they've been lied to or the truth has been, you know, concealed from them. Um, it can just damage the relationship, the trust. So supporting the birth family mm-hmm. and making access more transparent in a way yeah absolutely um, yeah. and the national standards as well you know that the standards that we're currently working from are 2003 so they're 20 years old um i believe that there are new standards in the pipeline so uh, one of the recommendations i made from my research was that you know that those standards are are worked on and released because uh you know the way we think about children and childhood has changed um, or how we think about it has has changed and has had to change. So we need new set of standards for new foster carers coming in. Like one of the things that's really missing in a lot of the training programs and standards is the use of space, physical space. Um, and so my whole PhD was on the role of um, different spaces in the identity construction of children and young people. So the relational spaces, which there is a lot of, out there on that. Um, and my interesting findings in relation to that were that not all relationships or some relationships that we might not necessarily think about like pets like other care experienced young people like siblings for example um, can have a lot more of an impact than we think they do but the other um, aspect that I looked at was physical spaces so how do, what impact does the physical environment that we're in you know what how does that make us think about ourselves what impression does it give about ourselves about our sense of belonging in that space um, and so spaces, for example, like social work offices, um, courts, places where other young people maybe not necessarily would be would ever be in and that were designed by adults, uh, maybe for adults. And some of the social work offices were child centred, but were almost too child centred. So the teenagers in my study, for example, um, was, you know, were in the same room with the same little toy trucks and dinkies. And it's there's nothing really there for us to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then the opposite side of that was the space in foster homes. Um, and again, for just for your listeners, 
it's such a simple thing to do but the amount of reassurance it gives to children and young people that they belong so wall space for example putting their picture up on the wall one of the families had this lovely um big mural made with all their names interlinked and the young person was like she took her photograph and i said why did you take photograph this and she said well, when you think about how much organising, like there's no way they're going to ask us to leave because they'd have to take that down because <laughs> our names are up there. So like they're definitely not going to ask us to leave. You know, it was just such a lovely, and I spoke to the foster mother about it afterwards and she said, it never would have occurred to me that would have that effect. I just did it because they are part of this family, you know, and we want them up on the wall. So different things like that, um, letting them design their own bedrooms in the way that they wanted to creating a little private space for them you know I I think that's something I'd I'd really love to see as well the whole kind of a a, a better understanding of the role of space in the lives of of actually all children um, but particularly children who you know can have this feeling that they might have to leave this sense of alternative um, you know if, if I'm not here then I might be somewhere else so the constant reassurance and it is a constant reassurance you know you might tell a young person 50 times in a week you're not going anywhere you're part of this family and you might have to tell them again the following week you know particularly in the early days yeah thanks that's really really good to hear and be reminded of that sometimes it's the simple things we overlook like Mm -hmm. the pet Mm -hmm. or having the you know the say in how the bedroom looks that can make all the difference to that sense of belonging yeah and actually another space that came out as um being really really important was the car space oh um you know again very um central to uh, the journeys about entering care remembering as i said to you actually at the start I remember that a key focus point for me was being in the car and looking back out the window and that was very very uh, common uh, one one girl uh, said about the pets it was kind of a mixture between the, the car and the pet she had her her dog had just had puppies and it was her responsibility she was only five when she went into care but her responsibility was to feed the dogs every day um or the pup and um she remembers the day she went into care the social worker saying to her in the back of the car what's in your top and she had the puppy hidden oh, under God. her jumper and it was wriggling around because she wanted to bring the, the dog. I mean, she was devastated to leave her family, but she was more devastated because she thought, if I leave the dog here, then nobody's going to feed it and it won't be okay. But again, she was able to describe the inside of the car because it was so vivid in her mind. Mm. Um, likewise, to and from access, young people spoke all the time about the conversations that they had. Um you know, I remember getting really cross with a social worker during after one of my access visits and actually behaved really appallingly. I must try and find her one of these days and apologise. Um, you know, I was quite aggressive uh, because I had just been in a really traumatic experience and now I was cooped up in this kind of car and I was being brought to a place that I didn't want to go to and I just felt completely lacking in control. And so I lashed out and that seems to be quite a, a common thing as well. Mm. but lots of lovely experiences of cars as well foster care is saying oh that's where all our chats happen you know they're in the back I'm in the front we're not face to face there's no awkwardness they're just chatting away looking out the window so it's it's again it's not that any space was considered more negative than another but it really makes you think about you know it being more than just a space it's it's actually opportunities for um, conversations and opening up kind of avenues to creating I suppose more trusting relationships so as we are approaching the end of this conversation which has been so just so wonderful 
is there anything that we haven't said that you would like to add in? So many. (laughs) I mean, I could sit here for another three hours, I imagine, and, and, and keep talking. I guess some, you know, it depends on who your listeners are. I think one of the things I always say to my students as well when we're doing classes around report writing, it's just, again, if I was to impart knowledge, is a lot of young people apply to get access to their files and um, and that's for multiple reasons sometimes you know parts of our story can be missing and we can't again if, if you've been separated from siblings a lot of co-construction of, or a lot of memories are co-constructed with other people and if you don't have those other people it's very difficult to to have a clear picture so um, I know myself and, and other care experienced friends that I have all applied for their files and it was quite difficult to read some of the information in there, how it was written by people maybe who I had thought I had a really good relationship with. Uh, and then to read that was kind of a re... I won't say it was re-traumatising, but it was difficult. Um, and, and I suppose I had I was in a place where I had worked on myself a lot and you know I had very supportive relationships at the time that I was reading. Not everybody is that lucky. So I always say to my students, write the report as if the young person is looking over your shoulder mm. and reading it as you're writing it because you never know you know what kind of way they'll take it in the future um so i think that's really important yeah it's like putting yourself in their shoes as much as possible whatever you're doing right yeah, you know is a good rule of thumb so i mean I'm, I'm only guessing that some of that language might have been a bit judgmental or mm. um just kind of casually labeling that kind of thing yeah yeah. To, to to imagine that the child is reading it later on and, and how would they feel? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, um, what you said in your podcast with Aisha as well uh, around the one significant person is honestly it is the most <laughs> relevant thing to, to children and young people in care because there there is so much going and coming. If you don't have that consistency, that stability for me, in the early years it was my granddad like he was just so amazing he was absolutely fantastic um and just to be able to know that he would be in his little apartment at this particular time or he was going to be in the library if it was this time or he'd be out in Tremor Beach if it was this time or you know I'd always know where I could find him and have a little chat and a pudding sandwich um and there was, there was so much to be said for that and I think uh, again to my students I always say to them not everybody will have that one person in the family so you might be that one person for them and it's really important that that's a privilege but it's also a huge responsibility so you know I think it's I think it's important just to remember that as well Mm -hmm. yeah thank you I I think your students are very lucky to have you teaching them in such a compassionate way (laughs) I think no really it's a it's a wonderful wonderful perspective that you bring so it's it's really heartening to hear that you are training people in this way uh, to go and and work with with children in care so thank you for that and thank thank you so much for being here it's been really great talking to you welcome thank you well that was an absolute privilege we're very grateful to danielle for sharing her story with us to learn more about Danielle and her work and research, you can go to wit.ie and search up Danielle Douglas. And if you've been affected by any of the themes raised in the podcast, Samaritans.org is one organisation that can offer support. Thank you for listening to Stories from Foster Care, and we'll see you next time. Stories from Foster Care is brought to you by the Irish Foster Care Association. 
in association with the Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth.